Um, it's kind of hard not to be repulsed by Pig, isn't it? You know, he's selfish, he's greedy, he's deceitful. Everything in the whole universe exists just for him. There he is at the center, and everything else is like a planet orbiting around him. He's at the center of his own little world, and everything and everyone exists for him to enjoy, to use. You got to admit it, though, we're all a little bit like pig sometimes, aren't we? And sometimes we're in a lot like pig. Just think about the kind of relationships that we often have at home, at work, or at school. We have friends around us, but friends that tend to make us feel about ourselves. Friends that maybe help us feel good. Maybe friends that help us see ourselves as being at the center of the world. And if you think that that's a bit of a long bow to draw, well, just think about the last time that maybe one of your friends or one of your former friends said to you, you know, I don't think you're doing the right thing there. I actually think you're being kind of selfish. I think you could be treating the people around you with a little bit more consideration. I think you could actually be kinder to other people, more considerate. I think maybe you've got a great big blind spot and you're right at the center of it. That's the sort of stuff, by the way, that friends should be telling one another. If there's things that I see, if there's things that others see about the way that I treat other people and I don't see them, don't we rely on our friends to tell us you're really not acting the right way? But think about what happens or what tends to happen to friendships when our friends tell us, I think you're doing something wrong. You should be more unselfish. You should be more considerate. Let's face it. None of us likes being told that what we're doing is wrong. And again, just imagine that in our brains, and I can only speak for myself here, but your brain suddenly becomes a ping pong game or a table tennis game. And you're bouncing back and forth between being aggressive and being defensive. First, you're defensive. No, no, I didn't. Or no, you don't understand. Or you didn't see what they did to me first. And then in the back of your mind, there's the old aggressive thing happening as well. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? Who are you to tell me what you think I'm doing is wrong? Are you that much better than what I am? Friendships, relationships have a very, very hard time surviving somebody telling us, I think what you're doing is wrong. I think what you're doing could be a little less selfish. I think what you're doing could be something that looks to other people first before yourself. None of us likes being told that what we do is wrong. So isn't it amazing that whenever we get together on a Sunday, one of the first things that we do is we confess to God. What do we confess? We confess that we have done something wrong. Don't you find that miraculous? That for people who do not like to ever admit that we're wrong, the first thing we do as Christians, when we get together is we confess to God, we've done something wrong. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved other people as ourselves. Forgive us. And yet, this just shows you what crafty, deceitful people we are. Even that can sometimes be a bit selfish, can't it? Most Christians, in most places, in most times throughout Christian history, have not confessed their sins that way. In other words, silently, generous, uh, uh, um, uh, um, silently, generally, anonymously. Most Christians have not confessed their sins in general, either in the quiet of our own hearts 
or by means of some kind of general prayer. Most Christians in most times in most places throughout Christian history have confessed their sins specifically to other people. They come to another brother or sister. They come to a priest. They come to a minister and they say specifically, this is what I've done. This is who I am. I've been wrong. By God's grace, will you forgive me? Will you help me not to do it again? Now, that little clench way down deep that you feel when you imagine taking something that you've done wrong that maybe nobody else has seen and taking it to somebody else and saying, this is what I've done, this is who I am, forgive me and help me not do it again. That little clinch, that, brothers and sisters, is our inner pig the pug. That's us wanting to keep ourselves at the center of our world and happy with everything else just floating around us. Because as many Christian teachers have taught us again and again and again, sin loves being kept in the dark. Sin thrives in hidden, in hiding. And it's the hardest thing in the world for sin to survive being brought to somebody else and being told, this is what I've done. This is who I am. Can you forgive me? Can you help me to be what God has called me to be? There's a wonderful theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that the selfish, sinful, greedy inner self can't survive that kind of humiliation. You see, none of us, none of us like admitting that we're wrong. But let me tell you about when our sin, when our selfishness, when our inner pig the pug reaches its deepest, its worst, its most horrible point. It reaches that point when even God is one of those things that orbits around our lives. When even God becomes something or someone that exists to serve us, to do what we want. When even God is someone who we expect to be on our side, to help us get the stuff we want. That's when sin really reaches its deepest point, when our lives no longer revolve around God, but God revolves around us. That may seem like a really weird kind of crass way of saying it, so let me just put it a little bit differently. Our selfishness reaches its deepest point when we believe that God has the same enemies that we do. Let me say that one more time. Our selfishness reaches its deepest point when we believe that God has the same enemies that we do. Just think about our readings from last week when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. You see, this tendency to see the world with us at the middle and everybody else revolving around us, this is something that's so boringly human that it's kind of, it's not surprising that we see it again and again throughout the scriptures. It's not surprising that we see God's people falling into that trap again and again and again. Just think about what it was that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. Satan tempted Jesus that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. They would, he would lay them at Jesus' feet. And Jesus would be exactly the kind of king, the kind of Messiah that everybody wanted him to be, that everybody expected him to be. Satan promises, in fact, Jesus something that's written specifically in Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your possession. Ask of me, 
and I will give you the kingdoms of the world as your inheritance. Just ask me. You can see the image, can't you? There's Israel and Israel's king right in the middle of the world and all the other nations bowing at their feet. It's an easy temptation to see God as on our side and everybody else existing to serve us. And then I think it's what's so remarkable about Jesus resisting this temptation. What he's resisting isn't some kind of sneaky, devilish thing where the devil is promising him something that he could never deliver. The thing that Jesus is resisting is the very thing that everybody expected Jesus to be. They wanted him to be the conquering king. They wanted Jesus to be the one who leads them in victory over all of their enemies. They wanted Jesus to be the one who sets them free from slavery. And let's remember that God's people in Jesus' time were in slavery. They were occupied by a foreign power. It's no wonder that they wanted a king who was going to come and lead them in victory. That's what the Messiah was going to do. Lead them in victory over their enemies. So it's no wonder. It's no wonder Jesus about whom so much is already being said. Jesus who's already gotten so many tongues wagging. It's no wonder that when Jesus sits down in the synagogue on the Sabbath in his hometown of Nazareth, everybody comes and everybody's listening. It's no wonder when Jesus opens up the scroll to read that day's reading and says this, reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's no wonder that everyone was sitting on the edge of their seats. This is the moment. This is the time that's been long promised when God will free us from our enemies. God will free us from those who oppress us. This is the moment. As we've been reading the passages from the gospel up to this week, you can get a sense, can't you, that everybody is has this idea that a pivotal moment has arrived. The climax of a long story is right on us. From John the Baptist and all the prophecies preceding him to Jesus and all the prophecies preceding him. Now is a moment. A moment where something really significant was going to happen. That moment has now arrived. The year of the Lord's favor, you heard Jesus make reference to. Everybody's waiting. What's he going to say now? There are many, many people before Jesus that would then say, so come with me out into the wilderness. We're going to whip up an army and we're going to storm the capital and drive out our enemies. A lot of people would use something like this as a call to arms. This is where God is leading us. Let's follow. Um, Jesus does something, as Charlie said before, incredibly unexpected. Instead of saying, I'm here as your Messiah and I'm on your side. Instead of saying, God is here to lead you in deliverance over all of your enemies, all those that you hate, all those who have oppressed you. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And just remember that up to this point, everybody is amazed by what Jesus is saying. 
Everyone's astounded by the gracious words that he speaks. Why is no prophet accepted in his hometown? I assure you, Jesus says, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Another one of the great prophets. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Do you realize how astonishing what Jesus just said is? Here you have the nation of Israel in a time of famine. And God sends his prophet Elijah. I beg your pardon. Elijah, uh, yes, Elijah. To none of them except for a widow who lives outside of the land of Israel, who is not even an Israelite. There were many people who suffered from the debilitating disease of leprosy in Elisha's time, and God sent none of his prophets except for Elisha to Naaman, the Syrian. And if you're not up with your Old Testament, Naaman was in fact any old Syrian. He was a Syrian general. He was one of the ones whose job it was to make God's people's lives hell. At this point, everybody is in a rage. The synagogue melts down. It seems like they all turn into pig the pug and they all say at the same time, mine, 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 mine. The Messiah is mine. God is mine. He's on our side. He exists to deliver us from our enemies. And when Jesus is no longer on their side, they're no longer on his. They stand up. They drive him out of town. They try to throw him over the cliff. Because Jesus isn't just saying, I'm not on your side. What he's saying is, in the same way as God is sending Elijah to the widow outside of Israel, in the same way that God has sent Elisha to a foreign general to bring God's grace and healing and kindness and love, so too God is sending me to your enemies. It's not easy, is it, to admit that just maybe God loves the people that we would count as being our enemies. One of the hardest things, I think, in the Christian life is to imagine that God loves people that we hate. Not just the people that we don't like, but the people that, whose dislike in many ways defines us. One of the hardest things in this world is to imagine that God doesn't love the same people that we love and hate the same people that we hate. This is one of our ways of bringing God into our orbit, into making God someone who serves us. There's a, a wonderful theologian friend of mine who often prays, God, don't grant me my desires. Instead, take away my hates. 
But if you take away my hates, he prays, I'm scared because how will I know who I am? Take away my hates, but I'm scared. For if you take away my hates, how will I know who I am? It's a very easy, it's a very human thing to define ourselves by what we're not. To define ourselves by who we do not like, by who we hate. And yet the radical message of Jesus is that God has sent his son to forgive to love, to embrace the very people that we would not be caught dead with. To love, to embrace the very people that we would name as our enemies. And very much like the people there in the synagogue, that's all a bit too much for us. Very much like Pig the Pug, that's all a bit too much for us, isn't it? And our tendency is then to say, no, this is mine. This grace is mine. This mercy is mine. God's love is mine and for people who are like me. If what you think I'm saying here is maybe a bit too far, if you think, oh, that's not really what Jesus is saying, is it? Can I just remind you, in two chapters on, this is what Jesus says to another large crowd of people who are gathered. If you love those, we all know this passage, don't we? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But Jesus says, love your, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything in return. Then your reward will be great and your children, and you will be children of the Most High. Be merciful. Jesus says, just as your father in heaven is merciful. It's one character in the story of Pig the Pug we haven't talked a lot about. We all recognize Pig, right? We all recognize Pig. I'm an awful lot like Pig way too often. But there is a real hero in that story, isn't there? Who is it? Trevor. Um... What I didn't tell you is that Pig the Pug is the first in a series of five books. And Trevor, uh, Pig is awful in all of them. And Trevor just keeps coming back for more and more and more. He puts up with Pig. He puts up with his selfishness and his scheming and his terrible body odor. He puts up with his little schemes and tricks to try to get Pig, uh, Trevor in trouble and for Pig to get what he wants. And Trevor just keeps coming back again and again and again. And there at the end of each book, there's Trevor alongside with Pig. We all recognize Pig. The challenge of Jesus, if I can put it in a little bit of a silly way, the challenge of Jesus is for us to find ways together to be an awful lot more like Trevor. Amen.